Would you please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16? I'll be reading Luke chapter 16, verse 18. In a moment, let's pray. Father, I ask that in these next 50 to 60 minutes, the gospel of Jesus Christ ring loudly and be viewed as precious. And that you encourage and strengthen marriages and singleness to the glory of your name. Amen. Luke 16, verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Last week we saw this verse in its larger context, verses 14 through 18, which we saw was at its core about the authority of Jesus. And here, His authoritative statement as the Lord of the universe is stark. It's clear. It's shocking. And it simply makes no sense to a culture that takes marriage so lightly and thus takes the gospel of Jesus Christ lightly. This topic on divorce and remarriage produces all kinds of feelings and reactions. I said last week, at the end of the sermon, I think this verse will need another sermon, but now I know it needs at least two more sermons. In our text, in Luke 16, verse 18, in Mark chapter 10, in Matthew chapter 5, and Matthew chapter 19, Jesus calls remarriage after divorce adultery. And thus He is forbidding remarriage after divorce. Certificate of divorce in hand or not. You remember the vows? If you did traditional vows. Forsaking all others until death do us part or as long as we both shall live. And this is one of the most sensitive and painful biblical topics in the church, in the church world, and in Christianity. The pain And the loss and the loneliness and the 
sense of betrayal and custody battles and anger and guilt and regret and moral outrage and the sense of unworthiness and all the other feelings and situations of life that divorce produces has got to be one of the worst and most painful experiences of life. Probably, it seems, more painful than the death of a spouse. As horrific as that must be. Because you add to it all these other things. And you add to it the abandonment. You add to it, I know you. I've lived with you. And therefore, this marriage cannot go on. It feels like an attack on your very personhood. As I contemplated addressing all of the relevant text on divorce and remarriage, which I am going to do, I just kept feeling compelled that I've got to say something, at least briefly, on the biblical understanding of what marriage is, so that we have a context for understanding the New Testament about the sin of divorce and of remarriage. So that's what I'm going to do. I want you to turn to the beginning of your Bible. Genesis chapter 1. What we are going to be reading is a creation ordinance. It is for all humanity. Muslim or Hindu or Christian or pagan or atheist this institution that God ordained and created called marriage. Chapter 1 of Genesis. I'll start with verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female. He created them. God's the one who came up with the idea of two sexes. And that those two sexes be, when they come into pubescence and adulthood, they be sexual beings. And verse 28, he goes on, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth. You, Adam and Eve, male, female, two different sexes, have sex. And then God goes on in Genesis, in chapter 2, to make it clear why and in what context this sexual intimacy that He thought up is to be enjoyed. Verse 22, chapter 2. 
And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, He made into a woman, and He brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then Moses says, which means God declares through Moses, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The only place that we are to have sexual relations with another human being is in the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. That's the biblical backdrop and the foundation of marriage. So, over here we have the Bible on marriage and what it says. And over here... We have 2013 American culture, which has fallen so far even in the last 40 years. The doctrine that is preached in sitcoms, in movies, in novels, throughout the high school hallways of our country, here's their doctrine. Dishonor! Marriage! Dishonor the glory of God pictured through the covenant of marriage. Sex outside of marriage is just assumed. It's natural. Oh, and it is natural. It is the flesh. It's natural, but therefore it must be good. It must be okay. Come on, you got to be kidding me, Joe. Don't be so old-fashioned as to, to believe the Bible on this issue that seriously. Well, I must be a nut then. Because I really want to encourage all of us in the church world and its sovereign grace, let's take the Word of God seriously. Let's hear it and love it. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 13 for a moment. I want you to listen one verse to what the Holy Spirit says to us through the writer to the Hebrews. Verse 4. Let Marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed, that means sexual intimacy in marriage, let the marriage bed be undefiled because God will judge the sexually immoral. That means the fornicators and adulterers. He says, let marriage, church, 
be held in your hands with honor. That honor means it's precious. As if you're holding a valuable little porcelain cup. Don't let it fall. Or a newborn baby. Coddle marriage. This verse says to every married person, it says to every divorced person, it says to every widow or widower, it says to every teenager or adult single, it's addressed to all. Here it is. Hear the command. Let marriage and sexual activity that God created to be experienced in the covenant of marriage, let that be held in honor by you. By not having sexual relations with somebody who is not your husband or your wife in the covenant of marriage. Now back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 19 or verse 18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. In verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. God is the one that does that. Above and beyond the state of California. So summed up what I've said about marriage very briefly is this. God has created everything for his glory. And He created humanity in His own image. And He made humanity male and female so that His glory would be expressed through that humanity in marriage. Which brings us to Ephesians chapter 5. If you'll turn there. What we see in Ephesians chapter 5 is that God created marriage in order to reflect as a metaphor to the universe the glory of Christ and His church. I'll start with verse 25. Paul writes, Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she, the church, might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife 
loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Okay, now watch. Watch what Paul does. Paul now is going to quote what we have been seeing in Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. End quote. Now watch what Paul says about it. This mystery in Genesis that we've been reading about is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I don't know if you got it. He just said, marriage between us human beings did not come first. But before God ever created Anything. He purposed to save many by His eternal Son becoming a human being. Jesus was as a lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. Before God ever spoke the universe into existence, His whole plan of salvation was finished including His purpose of creating a wife for His Son forever. Before He created. And that's why He instituted human marriage. To, to give a picture, a parable, that when His Son comes, it will be seen and it will be felt the depths of this groom loving His wife forever. Marriage is created as a pointer to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not the other way around. God did not say, oh my gosh, I cannot believe it. Man. Humanity has fallen into sin. Okay. Oh, I, got a, I got an idea. I'll save them through my son. I'll send him. Okay. Plan B, that's good. Oh, you know what? I created marriage. Whew, that, that'll work good. I'll grab marriage as an analogy of my son Christ in the church. It's not how it happened. Genesis, the whole ordination of marriage Paul says is what? This refers to Jesus and the church. That's the reality to which the shadow, the type called our marriages are to point. Christ first, then the covenant of human marriage is the parable speaking and pointing to Christ as the absolutely faithful husband. 
The mystery of marriage points to the reality that Jesus is faithful. He loves His bride and He loves her perfectly and He is faithful and He will never divorce her. Ever. Male and female we are created as sexual beings And that sexuality for us is to be expressed with another human being only in the covenant of marriage in order to reflect the glory of God and picture the love and the intimacy and the faithfulness between Jesus and His bride, the church. And that's why, biblically, Sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage dishonors the glory of God in marriage. That's why Hebrews 13.5 says, Don't dishonor marriage by fornication or adultery. The marriage covenant... Oh, if you're a believer and you love Christ, you've got to feel it and see it. The marriage covenant is sacred. It comes from the Latin. It means it's holy. And that's why Jesus declares in Matthew 19, after quoting our text, Genesis 2.24, He quotes it, Therefore, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. End quote. Now Jesus comments. So, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore? God has joined together, let no man, it means humanity, human institutions, separate. And so, back to our text. Our journey through the Gospel of Luke has brought us to this topic because Jesus says in verse 18 of chapter 16, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. In this verse, Jesus says that God does not recognize divorce. He doesn't recognize the court that says you just got divorced is actually severing that covenant of marriage. He says it so much so because if you go ahead and go down to the county and get marriage papers to marry another and you go have a wedding and you go off on your honeymoon and you consummate the wedding, you have just committed adultery. Okay. I'm still in my introduction. I feel great tension in dealing 
with this subject. On the one hand, I tremble at the thought of not being honest with what I see the Scripture teach on this subject. I feel compelled to emphasize the sacredness of marriage and to affirm the Scripture's teaching as I see them on the subject of divorce and remarriage. Our culture is just unraveling for the last hundred years on this issue. In 1920, one out of every ten marriages ended in divorce. 1930, it was one in seven. 1940, it was one in six. 1960, it was one in four. 1970, one in three. Today, it's about half. So the tension is, on the one hand, I do, I tremble at not saying, listen to how I say this, not saying what I see the Scripture teaching makes me fear as a pastor. But on the other hand, I know the difficulty of life, of our sin, of pain, the difficulty of what marriage is. I know that some are separated from their spouse, that some have experienced the trauma of divorce. Some who have divorced remain single. I know some have been divorced and have been remarried. My dilemma and the tension is this, to teach and to uphold the biblical standard and in the end have all of us who have sinned, which is all of us, but who have sinned even in the area of divorce and remarriage, to be repentant and thus forgiven and move on in the grace and the cleansing of the gospel in whatever life circumstances we now presently find ourselves. There is a place for everybody who has embraced Jesus and has repented of past sin and is walking in obedience to His Word. There's a place to be free and forgiven and cleansed and to move on while upholding the biblical standard on marriage and divorce and remarriage. Let, let, let me see if I can just paint a picture. If it helps. Was Paul impl implicitly guilty? Was he complicit in the murder, the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr? Yes. How did he move on in his life? Did he justify what he did to move on? Did he justify murder so that he could go live the rest of his decades in a peace? No. 
The answer to all sin when we come to see it is not to make a doctrine that says murder is now okay somehow. Or that fornication, sex outside of marriage, is okay because that's what I did before. It's acceptable. Or that adultery is no big deal. That's not the answer. But the answer is to see it, recognize it, repent, and embrace Jesus' forgiveness that was purchased on the cross and move on. See, Paul did not rationalize his sin of implicit murder. But he received salvation. He received forgiveness of sins. And then he went on to advocate against himself and against anybody else who would commit sin or murder in the future. Joe, you mean... So here's another little now. You mean... Because I do mean this. It's possible for two human beings, a man and a woman, to be shacking up and committing fornication for years. Sin. And then to marry and get married. And then down the road, he gets saved by Jesus. I mean, it's possible all the sin that came before that for Christ to take His wife and Himself and that marriage and sanctify it and make it beautiful and for that guy to go on and continually hold the standard of don't commit fornication that he did. Is that possible? Yes. It's not only possible, that's the gospel. Does that make any sense? That's my hope. This week, next week, at least. Is to honor and to esteem marriage without dishonoring any believer in Christ who has experienced the pain and the living hell of, marriage, of divorce. That's a Freudian slip. Gosh. No offense, babe. I want to encourage you who have been divorced or divorced and remarried with love and forgiveness without minimizing the importance of honoring marital vows now and in the future. And that's the challenge for all of us who are believers. To mingle the call to obedience to the truth of Scripture with tears of compassion for others. To uphold the biblical standard and to be tender and loving towards those who have failed those standards resting in Jesus' shed blood. Okay. My main concern this week, and at least next week, if not more, then is this. It is to come to grips with what the Bible teaches about the grounds for divorce, if any. 
and the grounds for remarriage, if any. But this morning, we only have a little time left. So in these closing minutes, what I'm going to do today, then, is give a large overview of the differing opinions in the church world on this subject. Then next week, we'll go to the Bible. We'll look at the text. So here we go. I'm going to divide these positions within the church with fellow believers throughout the world from past history to the present day. They're all alive. I'm going to divide them into two large categories. The first category is the category that divorce is never biblically permissible. Second category is divorce is sometimes biblically permissible. So, the first category, there are those who understand the New Testament to be teaching that divorce is never permissible. Meaning, for that Christian person to initiate divorce. What this means is that there are zero circumstances or allowances in the Bible for a person to divorce their spouse. To separate, to be protected even by the church or law enforcement in courts, yes. Often there's times for that. But to dissolve what God has joined together? No. In this view, neither adultery nor desertion warrants the severing of the covenant made with God, Christian or non-Christian. The marriage bond is unbreakable and there are no loopholes. This view understands the exception clause, if you're familiar with that term in Matthew, where Jesus essentially says the exact same things we see in Luke. He who divorces his wife and marries another exception, except for fornication. This view understands that exception clause not to refer to adultery, meaning unfaithfulness after the marriage vows have been said and that had been consummated with sexual union. It doesn't understand Jesus' exception clause that way. Instead, this view takes Luke chapter 16 verse 18 at face value. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And so remarriage after divorce is called adultery with the new husband and new wife. Let me give you an example of, of one person who holds this. Carl Laney, in his book, The Divorce Myth, essentially argues if a person is divorced by his or her spouse then they must remain single or be reconciled to their spouse. Even if the spouse who divorced them remarries another, they are not free to remarry 
as long as that spouse is still alive. In other words, in this position, the only thing that severs the covenant of marriage and allows remarriage is the death of one or both spouses. In Romans chapter 7, verses 2 to 3, Paul wrote, A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. In 1 Corinthians 7.39, Paul wrote, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. Only in the Lord, a Christian. Okay, That's the first large category that biblically divorce is never sanctioned or allowed on any grounds. Now, the second large category are those who believe that divorce is sometimes permissible. Okay, now, under this category, it gets a little convoluted, okay? Under this category, there are numbers of different subcategories. For instance, there are those who say divorce is on occasion permissible, but remarriage never is. Tell your spouse be dead. Then, secondly, there are those who say divorce is permissible, and when it is permissible, then remarriage after that divorce is permissible. Okay, so in that first category, some hold that divorce is permissible on what grounds? On the grounds of infidelity, sexual infidelity unfaithfulness, adultery committed by the other spouse. Some hold that that is the only ground for divorce. Others hold there's more than that ground. There's the ground of adultery and the ground of desertion where the spouse just absolutely left and deserted you in a long period of time. It's not like next week. And that's it. They've deserted you. Now, so there's people that hold just adultery or adultery and desertion. And in that group, people who hold both of those views also say, and remarriage is not allowable. In either case. Let me just say something briefly. The first four or five hundred years of the church, the majority view of the early church fathers was that the ground of divorce, which they, had, they thought there was one, was adultery. And even in that case, remarriage was unallowable. <laughs> now, then there are those who hold that divorce is permitted for adultery only. And in that case, the innocent party is free 
to remarry. They argue that the adultery committed by the other spouse is what severed the covenant of marriage, and that's how they get their justification. Now you're free to marry another and not be an adulterer or adulteress. Then there are those who hold that divorce is permitted for sexual infidelity and for desertion, and the innocent party in those cases is free to remarry. Now, some permit, yes, you can be divorced based on adultery of your partner that they've committed, or desertion, but you can only be remarried if your divorce was because of Adultery. Okay, got all that? You got those categories in your head? All right. Now, there is a lot of unclarity, I think, about the idea of the desertion ground. I mean, for instance, does physical abuse, sexual abuse of the spouse, of the children, let's get real here about real life, drunkenness, Drug addiction, financial recklessness, not feeling loved by him or her anymore, a lack of sexual relations in the marriage, incompatibility, a sense of hopelessness. We can go on and on. Do those things equal desertion? That's a big question when people talk about desertion as a grounds for divorce. And then, of course, there is, I'm just going to add this other category, the seeker-sensitive modern evangelicalism that is rampant in our country, which doesn't seem to want to go too deep theologically about anything. And in those circles, it just seems as if the practice of divorce and remarriage is almost allowed on for any reason. I don't love him anymore. Don't love her anymore. I've fallen out of love. I don't know. In the office, this guy is nice. He listens to me. I can share my heart with him. I haven't been able to do that with my husband for years. I'm feeling drawn. Maybe grounds for divorce. Fell in love with another. Or I'm just not happy in marriage anymore. She does not treat me like I deserve to be treated. Pretty much anything. And so much of evangelicalism goes as a ground for divorce. But I just hope that any serious Christian who believes in the Word of God easily shuns this man-centered non-Christianity. Okay, a couple weeks ago, teenagers in here, I think will remember, I gave them a bit of advice. Some of the best I've ever given, I think. I said to them, 30 years from now, 35 years from now, most of you will probably find yourselves married, got a few kids behind you, and in your midst, you went through different life 
changes and seasons, and you'll wake up one day feeling, I don't love her anymore. Or I don't love him anymore. Or I'm angry, and I've been angry, and I'm cold, or she's cold. Or No matter what it is. Here was, here was my advice to him. I said, when that happens, and if God gives you long enough years, it will happen to one degree or another. I said to them, I want what I'm going to say to you in this room, kids, to ring in your ears 30 years from now. Here it is. So what? So what? What of it? We're going to come to the relevant text, all of them, on this subject, starting next week, maybe finishing, don't know. But as I close this morning, I want to say to those of us in here, or who are listening, who are married right now, and love the Lord Jesus, the first thing is this. Feelings come, and feelings can go. Seasons of life, struggles, and change is inevitable. Don't forget two of the most important words in the English language. So what? When it comes to expectations you had and life's reality and marriage has fallen short, in your mind, when it comes to feeling uh, marriage is cold right now, or if your marriage is hot right now, it doesn't matter. You made a covenant with him or with her under. Those vacillations in life don't mean a hill of beans when it comes to modeling Jesus' faithfulness to the church and the church's devotion to Christ. Second thing I want to say is this. Your marriage is not God. Don't treat it as such. The source of real, ultimate, and eternal joy is not the degree of the happiness of your marriage. It is found in God. Don't make your marriage your pain or your joy. Third, you may say, but, 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 there are no buts except this. Your responsibility, husband or wife, your responsibility is not to change your spouse. Your responsibility is to see where you constantly need change in your heart 
and in your actions. And your responsibility is to go on obeying Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Jesus loves the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. Having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word. So let each one of you love his wife as you love and care for yourself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. So, when Jesus abandons a sinful, imperfect bride then you husbands may abandon your bride. Or when the bride of Christ, and it means all who have been born again and called by Him and put into His sheep pen, when the bride of Christ actually abandons and forsakes Jesus eternally, and thus causes his words that he will lose none of them to be untrue. But when that ever happens, then wives, you are free to abandon your husbands. And finally, come on up, Alex. If God can take a hell-bound, spiritually dead God-hater, is that you? And change your heart to love Him whom you never loved before. You may be surprised at what the living God may do to marriages. If you pursue Him for your marriage. Let's pray. Father, would you so deeply, powerfully move in our hearts, single, divorced, remarried, or married, Move in our hearts to see the gospel in marriage. And move in our hearts and change us as husbands to love our wives better. To pursue you, Lord Jesus, and asking, how is it that you love us? Sinners. Teach us to love our sinner wives. And teach wives to beg as you have changed my heart to worship and to delight in you, Jesus. Change my heart for submission and respect and adoration and love for my husband. Not just this morning, Lord, would you work these things so deeply in the midst of this community in the weeks and months and years to come to the glory of your